Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels single barrel barrel proof rye are available through Hudson Wine Market with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums, free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, if I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, thrilled to be going back to whiskey. I know we've taken a little bit of a break from that recently, but going back to whiskey, going back to Scotland and starting on the far west coast. Today, we're going to be talking Adelphi Distillery and Arden American with Jenny Carlson. Jenny, welcome on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Same here. Glad to have you on. And uh, just a quick note before we start. Yes, uh, Ardemarkin, Adelphi, Adelphi or Adelphi, which is preferred? Well, we say Adelphi. Okay, that's right. So Ardemarkin, Adelphi are uh, part of the Impex Bev portfolio, and Impex is a sponsor of the Whiskey Ring podcast. So I do thank them for making this introduction and for making this possible. So with that, let's kick it off. So Jenny, you've been, as you just said, this is your, uh, today's your three-year anniversary with yes. Ardemarkin. So uh, congrats again on that. And so let's start off with, instead of starting off with the Art American story, let's start off with you. What's your story? Oh, wow. Well, look, thank you so much. I, I woke up this morning to a few messages on my LinkedIn saying, congratulations on your work anniversary. And I, I've been saying everything to you that I feel like those three years could have been a lifetime and they could have been five minutes. And I think that's a healthy sign. That just means that I'm having a lot of fun and we're achieving a lot of things in those three years. Because I joined the company uh, amidst the global pandemic and we launched our first single malt that September. So two years later, uh, two months, sorry, two weeks later, that single malt AD core was, was launched uh, across the world. So it was a quick start with Arden American and everything I've done up until then kind of led led up to that moment in my in my career. I, I, I studied at Harriet Watt University, I did brewing and distilling, I did um I worked in a whiskey shop as a student, I did whiskey tastings there. And I always, so this is in the last 20 years. And then my first job out of university was with Springbank. Um, I worked with them and, and I launched Kilcaran into the world and um, had some, I had two kids in the middle of everything. So I took a little career break 
But for, coming back to whiskey through whiskey Edinburgh Whiskey Academy, which is um, it's a really cool uh, diploma you can do learning about whiskey in depth and uh, continue with tastings and brand activations on a freelance basis. So I've always had my my finger on the pulse. I've, I've been quite well connected throughout my 20 years in industry and I'm lucky to be able to work for some really cool companies. I, I've freelanced for Aaron, Kilhoman and all these really nice, cool whiskies that I really enjoy myself. There is a pattern. <laughs> but I do, I do enjoy it. This industry is probably the most surreal one to work in like we get to travel we get to talk to really nice people and we we, we drink whiskey so my job with Arden and the title is um communications marketing communications manager and it covers a lot of things um at that point I thought when I started I've worked in industry for so long I know I know about whiskey making I know about whiskey tasting but what I didn't know about was the whole new aspect of this new generation of distilleries is the sustainability we have to uh we put through the process so I I, I had to basically pick up the school books and learn how how do we talk about our uh sustainability how do we practice responsible distilling how do we add value to the local area we're in how do we do all these things that to me was something I hadn't thought I was going to have to learn or I didn't know about it and this is what I love about this job and about this industry is that you, there's always new stuff to pick up the, the whiskey making is traditional the three ingredients are the same and um, the people in Scotland and the history is clearly the same it's beautiful and fun and wonderful but there is a new element of this sort of how do we make it how do we, do we make it and how do we take care of nature? And um, you know, it's it's constant fun and responsibility. <laughs> I keep saying it. I've never talked to someone on the podcast who didn't seem like they were having fun in their in their job, no matter what the travel schedule was like or the uh, commitments they had to do. It always seemed like at the at the end of it, they're like, "I still get to travel and drink whiskey <laughs> as part of the job. It can't be all bad." So uh, as you just went through, you have, you have very strong history with not only distilling, but, uh, you know, as I said, studying at Harriet Watt, Springbank, Hazelburn, Kilcarran, uh, living in Campbelltown for, for several years and immersing yourself there. When you came to Ardemark and what parts of those uh, former jobs were you able to really bring with you right away? Oh, wow. Basically... My first visit to the distillery was, um, it was in July, because even though t today is my three-year anniversary, for the for July, August, September, I, I freelanced for Arden American. Um, Alex asked me to take on uh, the QR code project. So with the new product coming out, we have a QR code on the back of the label that tells you the story about that bottling. So he needed somebody to look after that. So he booked me as a freelance person to do that. So I was already in touch with them, with the distillery. But my first visit to the distillery, driving that little windy road down to the distillery it was spectacular. What an experience. Um, having, like you said, lived in Campbelltown, I, I knew about remote living, but this is something else. This is like an island on an island. <laughs> but anyway, I, I drove down and as I parked my car up, I can see the top door open at the uh, number one warehouse and there's an arm waving out at me. And it was Connell McKenzie, the director of sales. And he had to do that because there's no mobile phone reception. So he couldn't just phone or message me to say where he was. He actually literally had to hang out that door with his foot in the door going, I'm up here. 
So I went up and him and Alex were busy picking casks, basically for this next single malt. And that was my first day as uh, at the distillery working with them. So straight away, like the first thing we did was nosing casks. So I could use my experience and having done that with other distilleries and um even at the academy we worked on the there was a big sensory um module that you that we go through and talk about how how whiskey um uh, brings out memories in your brain and how you how you experience your nosing and uh, relations to memories anyway it, it, it was my it, i pulled on all these things when i was in that um all my senses were just like firing <laughs> they were just like going the smell in there and the um just seeing Alex again I've known him for many years through the industry but to see him and and he was now my colleague that was just uh, amazing an amazing feeling but yeah it was a great day and then um I'd used every skill like from as a student working in the uh, in the whiskey shops we're constantly meeting people you're constantly finding out what they like and how they how they relate to the area you're in or the product that you're making or your social media. And it's just communication. And that's something that I've been heavily involved with from the start of my career and still am. So as you can hear, I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like never, never hurts. And like you said, in this industry, you need to. So that's, that's good. That's good. It means a good conversation too. <laughs> so so uh, taking a step back then, I do want to just have you clarify kind of the the Ardemarkin versus Adelphi and where the two interact. The connection between Adelphi and Ardemarkin, right? It's um, Adelphi independent bottlers have been around for thirty years. In fact, we're celebrating our thirtieth anniversary in November with a big party. We're good at having those, <laughs> so we're having a big party at the end of this year because Adelphi is turning thirty. Um. Alex Bruce, the managing director uh, of us, our company, joined Adelphi in 2003. And I'd say within five years or six years him, of him becoming the general manager of, of Adelphi and, and buying casks and bottling casks and, mm -hmm. and selling to the markets, uh, he realized that there was going to be a shortage of good quality whiskey. And I spoke to the board of directors who were all heavily involved in Adelphi. Like they were helping labeling. It's a very small like a very small business they were helping helping with the labeling they were helping choosing casks they were you know it was all like a more like a family feel to the whole um, office and um he they had the conversation about what to do uh, we've got these casks um that come in and we bottle them we we don't sit on casks we don't buy to mature as such we buy them to bottle them and we only buy whiskey that we feel um will please the nation or the people that will enjoy drinking so the decision was then made that, um, well, they had the choice. They could lock themselves in the warehouse and drink all the casks and forget that ever happened and then stop the business right there. Um, they could also look into uh, maybe buying a distillery that was already operating. And there was talk about that. Um, quite, quite serious talk about buying an existing distillery. Um, but then the, the third option was to build. Two of the directors, yes, had land in Northern America and it made sense to build the distillery out there. Um, beautiful um, location, beautiful part of Scotland. It's the most westerly mainland point of Britain. 
Uh, it's this little peninsula that hangs out in between the Isle of Skye and the Isle of Mull, kind of stretching out out there. It's it's pretty, it's beautiful, and it's right on the coast. Volcanic um, rocks, rounded by volcanic rocks, and really quite prehistoric um, flora and fauna. It's 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 interesting. The area is beautiful. It's, it's pretty special. So uh, the distillery was built, and the spirit came off in 2014, and um, they've never looked back since. When you make whiskey, you know it has to be three years in oak before you can call it whiskey. Um, so out of curiosity, in 2016, 17, 18 and 19, they trialed a few smaller bottlings. They had octaves maturing. So octaves are 60, 50, 60 litre um, barrels um, previously seasoned with sherry or, or, or something like that. And uh, they bottled a couple of those and called it the 80 spirit just to see what the world thought of the spirit. It wasn't whiskey, it was a spirit. And the feedback was pretty good. So they were quite happy. But there was never any pressure that as soon as it's three, we're going to just bottle 50,000 bottles of this single malt whiskey because it's three years old. Because that pressure was taken off by us still running the Adelphi business on the side. So we were still buying casks, bottling whiskey. We could still finance our um our, our finance the Adelphi side of things that was not a problem but we were in no rush of letting the the single malt coming out so it took until 2020 and then Alex and Connell had tried a few casks and decided that this is uh this is ready now for bottling so our first single malt whiskey came out at the age of five six years old and um that's the age the single malt core has been ever since so every time you get a batch you scan the QR code and it gives you the details of the of the production data. So um, we've just done some 2018 stuff. So that'll be a five-year-old. Um, yeah, and and uh, Adelphi is still going strong. We we are like every other independent bottler, you know, the, the quality casks, parcels that you used to receive, they don't, they are far and few between now. We are incredibly lucky to have Alex who, he just seems to know the right people. and. <laughs> And he's got a great um, network of, of uh, people that, that has been supplying us with casks. And see, with having the distillery, it means we can also say to other distilleries with independent bottlers, do you want to swap? <laughs> Let's swap spirit. Or, you know, we, we play around. We've done some fun stuff with the Thompson Brothers up in Doorknock and a few other companies that we can actually just have a bit of fun with and 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 use the, the whiskey almost a bit like currency to, to get more casks for for Adelphi. So we're currently an independent bottler, which is Adelphi. We're calling it the Adelphi Selection now. And then Arden American Distillery, which is the independent distillery. But this May, we just messed with everybody's head and released another product that we put right in between. So you've got something called McLean's Nose. So it's it's an it, we call it an Adelphi product. So McLean's nose is a deluxe blended scotch, which contains a high uh, percentage of single malt whiskey. So more, higher than you would normally get in, in a blended scotch. Uh, it's seventy percent single malt. A big portion of that has been matured in sherry casks. It's got a real rich, that round, beautiful, viscous sherry uh, presence, and then a lot of it comes from um, a secret West Highland distillery, which may or may. <laughs> which may be handy if you like. Uh, but there's also some single malt from Campbelltown in there and some really nice green whiskey that's um, um, sherry matured. So it's it's a great, uh, really good value blended scotch that's just hitting the shores of America as we speak. 
So look out for the McLean's nose. And that is a nod to the distillery because McLean's nose, as much as it refers to our chief nose from Adelphi, Mr. Charlie McLean or Sir Charlie McLean, <laughs> it also refers to a rocky outcrop near the distillery, which is this big rock that just, it looks a bit like a crocodile. It goes right down into the sea. That's a big rocky outcrop. That's called McLean's nose. So most sailors out there will know of it. There's a fish farm out there called McLean's Nose. So it's a it's a nod to the distillery. It's a nod to Adelphi that we have this sort of one product to tie us together. And when we launched, when we had our launch party in 2014, I think it was, um, Charlie McLean was at the distillery and he said something along the lines of, um, our American distillery, the closest one to my nose, and it's stuck in Alex's mind. And he thought, that's too good not to use somewhere. So this is like almost 10 years later eight nine years later he was like mclean's nose the blended scotch it's coming out <laughs> and i do have a bottle of the mclean's nose with me right now uh and i will say it's a little bit early for me to be uh drinking outside of the industry but um <laughs> uh, i have been enjoying it quite a bit there's about half left in the bottle right now um, and sharing it with friends and it's really a just a lovely product it has, as you said, it's a higher malt content. It's about 70, 30-ish, yeah. um, something like that. Um, not overly sherried at all. You can tell there's a lot of effort put into the blending of this so that no no one portion of it kind of sticks out too much. Yeah, and it's you, a balance. Yeah, it's a nice balance, a really nice balance. Um, and also, frankly, for something that is named after someone that well-known with good product in it, uh, it's also been a very solid price point. So- as you see it rolling yeah. across the US, you know, I'll put out my review uh, if I haven't already by this point. And uh, you'll know that it's really just an excellent thing that you should be uh, checking out. And on the front of the bottle, I should note, and I didn't notice this before, but you have the rocky outcropping. Yeah. And you said it looks kind of like a crocodile sliding into the sea. And now that you say that, yeah. I can really see like the head of the crocodile facing downwards yeah. in there. And it's, really true it's like someone says like elephant rock or something and it looks like yeah. an elephant that's exactly what it looks like do do me a favor run your fingers across the label because the that label paper is unique it's made from a portion of crushed barley so we reuse mm. x barley that's been used in a beer and whiskey making process so the paper mache has used quite a big portion of of x barley husks so you can actually feel it and almost see the grain in the paper as well it's all about sticking to that sustainable message as well that we're trying to you know, we're not great at communicating it, but we when we make decisions, it's always about that. So I can tell you to look at it and see it now. So, and Absolutely. I think, like you said, it's well-priced. If you're curious, buy it. You're not going to lose a lot of money. And if you love it, even better, you buy another one. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. And yeah, this paper is very, I hadn't even thought of that. I, I remember thinking this is a little texture. It's definitely different. I thought maybe recycled or something like that, where you have the kind of grainier texture. But in this case, it's literally a grainier texture. So uh, it's quite nice. I like that. Um, with, with, uh, I just thought of this with, with Charlie, Sir Charlie, I should say, Sir <laughs> um, with him, uh, also being called the nose, does, do you know, if he ever runs into issues with Richard Patterson with them both being called the nose? I don't know. I know they're good friends though. I know they wouldn't be 
any flexing, <laughs> but um, we call him the, our Adelphi the chief nose. And he does work for a few companies. So there's other people, other companies that also use him as the, as the chief nose. But it's funny that um, they both got, they're known for their their nose and they probably insured him for lots of money. <laughs> I, just, I know I, Richards is insured for sure. So yeah. <laughs> if Charlie has, doesn't have his insurance, he should get on that right I, now. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> so the the site was set and and chosen because you got the those two the directors who had the land and and in some ways that was kind of a a really nice convenient coincidence that yeah. this land was available that it could it could fit a distillery and all, everything that goes with it um, but it's still not the most convenient site to build a <laughs> distillery on um, you know it's not it's not too far away again as crow flies from Sky Talisker. Tobermory, Isle of Mull, but mm. um, and even from necessarily from Cameltown, but it's not that easy to get to. Oh. Uh, I think I was reading in uh, in Dave Broom's A Sense of Place. I believe he visited that as part of the book. That it was maybe five miles or something across the water, but it was a two-hour drive and something like that. Yeah, um, so, it's a long drive. Yeah. The nearest town is Fort William. It takes an hour and a half to drive there, but it's to fly it would be minutes. But it's really quite a it's an, an interesting road. You need a um, couple of helicopters. Just yeah. if it wasn't for a sustainable message, we would definitely have helicopters. Electric ones, maybe we need to get. We were sure. we, we jokingly said that we do get visitors, we VIP visitors sometimes, and they do come by helicopter, and there are space at the distillery to land that. But uh, we find that. Um, Part of the uh, part of the whole experience with our distillery is the journey you make to take to come and visit us. I we you're right that location was so suitable because of the directors obviously, but also we we chose that bit um, because where it sat in the rocks and the, and the fresh water coming down the, the the springs and the hill, but it does determine our spirit in more ways than one. <clears throat> we. <laughs> We had to design our mash tun. So that's the one unit uh, that came into the distillery when we built it in one piece. That couldn't be any bigger than 3.2 meters because this na most narrow ridge driving over to our peninsula is 3.4 or something along those lines. It was a very tiny proportion on either side of that mash tun. And the lorry that took it over, it, there is a video somewhere on YouTube, I'm trying to find it. Um, the lorry was, uh, he was precise when he drove across that bridge. And that's the, that's determined how big our match is. And it's, um, it's also obviously right on the coast. We can't, we mature our whiskey where we are. We, we, we distill it and we mature it there. We have six warehouses. In fact, the one that I described when I first started, number one, uh, that was our first warehouse. It's unusual because it's in two levels. So the bottom level is warehouse lower, one lower, and it's a Dunwich warehouse. And then um, the top floor has got, um, you know, cement floor or, or concrete floor. So it's a um, stacking warehouse. I can't remember what you call those. I've, I've worked with Dunwich warehouses everywhere I've been, so I can barely remember the name of the other the warehouses. But that's a different, um, so it's got a different um, surface that it's maturing on. But the other thing that's different is it's it's about 20 meters higher as well in the in the 
altitude. So you're getting a completely different temperature in the top level to where you get in the bottom level. And that has a major effect on the way we mature our whiskies. So a lot of our whiskies get finished there, uh, including our Paul Noir that comes out every now and again, and once a year, that sits for the last bit of its life, sits up there and matures very happily in that quite for Scotland, tropical environments. <laughs> it's uh, when we climb up these casks upstairs and pull samples, you feel the difference in temperature the last bit that you climb up. It's it's just this microclimate and, and it's amazing. It just has a big effect on the way our whiskey matures. Um, the water that come, coming off the hills, very, um, uh, very peaty. <laughs> when you run the tap, you get yellow water. And we're all used to it now. But that's the color of the water because of the peat. So we have a really mineralic water, peaty. And we definitely, and that's what we use to dilute the spirit down when we put it into the casks to mature. So the whole process is quite holistically made there on that site. And everything that happens there has an effect on the way the whiskey matures and tastes as it comes off the casks. And uh, I definitely have a question or two about that. Uh down my down my list but uh so we'll keep that in mind and i won't let you go without asking those questions so we'll definitely get there for sure uh with the so back on it march of 2021 um, i don't believe this wasn't an episode with you but it was with one of your colleagues on um whiskey talk and it said that the you know the site doesn't have any legal whiskey making history plenty of illicit distilling as almost everywhere in Scotland does, but uh, and Ireland and everywhere around there, but yeah. uh, no real legal whiskey making dis- making history. And I, yes, it's tough to get to, of course. But I think about you know early eighteen hundreds, even se- late seventeen hundreds, it was not necessarily any more difficult to get to than any other spot on the coast or farther away. So, um, particularly given its proximity to these places like Skye and Talisker and, and Isle of Mull. Why do you think this area never got its own distillery, its own legal distillery, let's say? Yeah. I mean, that's a question I have never been asked before. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's a good question. There are, the area where we are has, um, if you just drive a little bit down the road, in, in fact, towards McLean's Nose, that rocky outcrop, there is settlements along the way. Um, so you can tell that there has been little villages and you still see the ruins of, of farmhouses. And there's definitely been a lot of life and a lot of um, farming going on there. And I'm convinced a lot of illicit distillation. The reason it never maybe became commercial there could be anything from, I don't know, to be honest, but I would be guessing, like with Space Side, they had the railway that was the first railway to be installed in, for that purpose. And they also had a River Spey. And Campbelltown um, is just perfectly located with the deep harbour. We don't have a deep harbour. So Campbelltown had the massive be- deep, I mean, Campbelltown Lock is just, it's so good. It's got a song made of it. <laughs> You know, it's got that, the, the shipping facilities. So I can only think that it wasn't the best for moving stock once you built there. Um, because it's too shallow and there is no railway that can make that trip. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be my only thing. No, I mean, that that makes sense. It's, you know, yeah. even if you got there, you still have to get the product back out. If yeah. you want to be commercial. So. Doesn't make sense, but it, like I said, it was just so 
remarkable, uh, particularly yeah. for, as you're saying, it, it's a spot that otherwise seems like it would be perfect for wow. a distillery. And clearly the team thought so. So Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a really good question. And I, I mean, I will look into that a bit more because I know there has been the local village, Calhoun, there was some historic stories about, um, um, I think it was the local priest liking whiskey and then there were some stories around surrounding that um but anyway look at it there is there was never a distillery that made it as as a commercial distillery let's put it that way because i think it was just too hard to get the product away from the peninsula um <laughs> it and because of just jumping back a second too because of the um you said because of the adelphi ownership you didn't have to make uh, any clear spirits you didn't have to put it out at three years the single malt out at three years old you could wait a little bit you're able to build a distillery uh from scratch yeah. uh, in just period you were able to build a distillery from scratch but also mm-hmm. in uh, a somewhat remote place but i also think about what you said earlier you said that the the flora there are it's a bit prehistoric in a way and untouched and I'd be curious, certainly not asking you to make a vodka, but uh, I'd be curious if there was any interest in making uh, a gin with kind of local botanicals. <laughs> so the, the joke is almost that that's our USB, is that we never made a gin. Because <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of new distillers do, and I can see why, and they make a really good job of it. Um, we definitely have the botanicals to make a nice gin, don't get me wrong, but the capacity of the distillery or what we're actually producing right now is sits between three well last year we did four hundred thousand liters but we were working weekends we're now doing cost of living has made some changes to how we have to produce and we're now making i think 350 around about 350,000 liters the spirit we make is for whiskey that's that's all i can say it's malt spirit so it's going to be used in whiskey we don't make that neutral grain spirit or the neutral vodka spirit that you can flavor then and become gin that's not on our agenda um i believe there is a little gin distillery that's just recently opened up not far from us but i think it's just this summer so i need to look into that um but yeah the area is full of um beautiful botanicals that were used in times for flavoring for first making um homes smell nice and flavoring drinks and food there's loads i can't think of a single name right now because um i'm not very botanical person but i have pictures on my phone of them (laughs) one of our directors is the most amazing uh person to take a walk with she will name every plant and every animal every track on that road behind the distillery and she knows all about it and where it was used and how it was used so yeah i think i was i was talking recently with uh with eddie brooke from cape byron distillery down in australia um a jim McEwen associated product so there was a connection to scotland there and he was oh, listing yeah. off the uh of the 25 botanicals there are 17 are local and native and i mean I don't know offhand what the botanicals are near you either, but the ones in Australia just seemed, I don't know, there's a level of exotic where you're like, yeah. oh, that I haven't seen that before, but it's realistic. And then there's things that you see, they're like, that's not real. That can't be real. <laughs> that that name can't be real, but it is. And um, I know it gins is. are a side project for me just because as much as I love whiskey and I, and I it's still my focus, um, I feel like gins have 
they do have a role to play in showing the local environment and particularly for distilleries that are interested in terroir and, and sense of place and all of those different terms um it can add a little bit to the experience but you said there's there might be a gin distillery nearby you that could be a nice supplement so i'll try their gin and yeah and then the, yeah yeah we would um yeah we, 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 i need to make a mental note to approach them because we have a little shop that we sell uh we sell gin from um and now I've forgotten the name of them. We sell gin from, from two distilleries, uh, out of Scottish distilleries, and they're just beautiful gins. Um, we're very lucky. We have lots of really great gin producers in Scotland. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm partial to a wee gin and tonic. And so is everyone in our team, actually. <laughs> I still can't get the tonic. I can't do the tonic. I don't know why. I like bitter flavors. I really do. I just can't. Yeah. There's something about the tonic I can't handle. But that's fine. We had a side note. We had a, um, it might be because we had, like around 13, 14 years old. I don't know. Um, we weren't drinking the gin part, but it's like a tonic water drinking contest. Just straight. That sounds crazy. Canada dry <laughs> tonic water. Um, I made it about two sips. and I was like, nope, good. <laughs> uh, it was not pretty. Um, anyway, back to... <laughs> I know. I mean, I I can I can't if I'm really thirsty and I grab a pure tonic, I can't drink it like that. It has to have gin in it. Yeah, it might say more about me than the than the tonic, but I really need gin in my tonic. <laughs> I mean, we don't often have malaria anymore, so the tonic is not a usual drink anymore. You know, just by itself. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the. Uh, the next part that I wanted to mention uh, is, well, you mentioned it earlier, was the peated water. Uh, it's definitely something pretty unique about Scott for Scottish distillery, for any distillery. I uh, So the peated water comes off the local uh, hills through the local peat you know, deposits. You said you get yellow water uh, when you turn out the, the pipes. So as far as I can remember, at least for, of the ones that I've talked to or tried, I don't believe peated water has been mentioned before. It must be a thing because there's. Oh, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Go it's everywhere. Well. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But you don't really hear it talked about, and it's certainly not used in the process the way that you're making it at, at Art American. Well, so you can, I mean, it definitely used in the process. And sometimes some distilleries will um, use it for the distillation, but then they ship their spirits somewhere else to be put into casks. So a different type of water is then diluted down. You know, you make the whiskey into 63.5%. Right, right. So what we do is we use the same water that's in production. We dilute our casks, sorry, our spirit down to do 63.5% before we put it in casks. So we use that water again there. And it's definitely um, something that we feel adds both uh, that mineralic tone and, um, and a different quality to it. I mean, obviously... We, we, we've only ever done it that way. We haven't compared to it. We've never shipped our spirit off at 70% alcohol and had it casked somewhere else. So we only can go with what we believe works and it is what it makes it works. And at some point it'll become, oh, we can never change this because this is how it is made and it's going to change everything. So we're at that stage where we're, tur- we're turning 10 next year. So things are becoming now like real and we've been experimenting a little bit and tried things and changed the way we do things and i mean building a distillery in 2012 13 14 uh, means that you have access to new technology and you have access to new science and 
And there was a big um, shift in building in or before 2010 and after because um, all of a sudden, instead of using gas and oil and diesel to heat your stills, you can use um, biomass, you can, which is what we're doing. We're using wood chip. We're firing up wood chip, um, heating up water to become steam and then heating our stills off that. Um, we're also you have a hydroelectric pond that we're using for to generate energy. We've just put on 138 solar panels that are generating a lot of electricity. You wouldn't think solar panels would work in Scotland, but we have proof it does. And um, that's something that's new. That's like older generations of distilleries can't adapt their production that way. But that's the nature of the beast. They can do other things to stay ahead of the game and they will and they are but from our point of view and from McNeen's point of view and and all these new distilleries are beaky and all these distilleries we listened to what was happening around us and and the scotch whiskey association were adamant that the industry is going to be carbon neutral before the rest of scottish industries in 2040 so we're working towards that goal as a as a team if you like and um it's not a switch it's not something you just like you know, switch on, that's it. 2014, we've done this one thing. It's constant. Every decision we make is always at the back of it. We need to figure out if this is the best way to do it. Is it going to be beneficial for the area? Is it going to be beneficial for the people? Is it going to be financially okay? Uh, we have to weigh all these decisions up. Um, and we're constantly doing things. Like um, the solar panels came up in March. Um before that, we even done things like changing the light bulbs to a more energy sufficient light bulb. Um, we, we're trying to keep the area running as a circular economy. So we get wood chip from a company called Woodland Renewables, which is about two miles up the hill. I'm pointing, but I'm not nowhere near the distillery, but you know what I mean up the hill when I'm pointing my right hand finger like that. And I'm um, so Woodland Renewables is this company that will send us the wood chip and they have a hundred year old plan to replant forest in the area. So it grows 10, 10 miles around us and them and that gets replanted every time they chop wood down they'll replant it and provide us and the local schools and the local housing with this wood chip that is then um, used to heat up houses and, and our stills as well. They also do something else for us. They take our byproducts or co-products we should call it because we make a spirit but while you're making the spirit you end up with pot ale spent leaves and draft draft is what comes off your mash tun it's that porridgey sort of barley um porridge that comes out um we use obviously some of it has been used to make um that paper that we were talking about earlier there wasn't our own husk it came from another distillery but we take we send our uh draft to the Woodland Renewables, along with our pot ale, which is a dark, sticky residue that comes from the um, wash still. And we send that over a hill to them and they dehydrate that down and mix it with a draft and turn it into wood, uh, so little pellets, not wood pellets, to food pellets for the animals. And it means because it's in pelletal form, it can be fed to the animals throughout the year. It doesn't have to be straight away because when you feed them draft, that goes off after a couple of weeks or days even. It's quite a, a quick process. So when you dehydrate it and mix it with the pot ale, you create this really high energy food, rich food for the animals on the peninsula and the islands. The other thing they take away is spent leaves, which is the other sort of co-product that comes off this still, the spirit still. 
that stuff is nasty. Well, it's not nasty, but it's not the stuff that you want in your whiskey. And it's something that needs to be treated before you can put it back into the, you can return it back into nature. And that can be done in a very natural way. And it's been done like that for many years, decades, but we're adapting it now in the, in the spirit industry as well. And it's a big, <clears throat> it's a field of um, reeds, water reeds. They're about two meters tall. And it's the size of a football field, I would say, or soccer, as you call it, <laughs> soccer field. <laughs> and it's um, the biological um, uh, process that goes on in the root of these um, uh, reeds cleans the spent leaves. And I don't know the chemical process that goes on behind it. I should probably be better at talking about that. But there is a beautiful chemical process that goes on and it's all natural and biodegradable and it turns the spent leaves into a neutral um safe to return to uh, nature water if you like so there's two stages of the of the the reed beds and then it sits in a in a pond for a bit before it cleans it's cleaned and gets sent back into nature so we're trying to just not uh, just take make and dispose of we we will return and we'll keep this sort of circular wheel running and they can add value then to that by selling that food pellets they add value and they hire people to to work on, with them um the latest thing that we're working on is our weight uh, uh wastewater which is water that you use when you clean your equipment um it, there's a lot of cleaning that goes on in brewing and distilling and you need to keep on top of that uh, to keep your qualities up <clears throat> and we looked into using enzymes, which is also a natural cleaner, but I think there was some issues with that. We we tried that. We trialed that with our Biki and Naknin, I think it was. We trialed it with other distilleries, and it, the conclusion was that it didn't work as well as we'd hoped for. Um, I think we're going to revisit that though. It, it does not just because we tried it once doesn't mean it's not going to work in the future because we keep constantly changing things. So it might work in the future, but currently we're now just cleaning uh, using. Uh, uh, chemicals and that gets shipped out by a tanker so that is the one element that we want to reduce or take away and as we're speaking this is what i'm currently working on with our production manager and, and alex as well we're, cu we're currently working on a process that is used by to clean that water up and uh, it can just get put back out in nature so it's always stuff going on that's a bit Beautiful. boring People drink whiskey and they don't think about those boring things. But I don't know. I think I think more and more people are thinking about the sustainability aspect. I mean, I look at it this way. If if people weren't concerned about it, if consumers weren't concerned about it, then companies wouldn't be promoting it. They might do those things to fit with either the Scotch Whiskey Association or to fit with Scottish or EU or British laws. But um, the fact that you're that it's not just something you do, it's really part of Art American's identity. Yeah, yeah. And as you pointed out, Art Beaky, Nick Neen, a couple of others as well. The mm -hmm. fact that it's part of the identity and promoted as such, I think says that the consumer has some interest at least in in understanding it and appreciating it. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good, like I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it is good. It is important. You're absolutely right. And yeah. um yeah, no, it is important. And and every decision we make is with that in the back of our mind. So and the most that we really hear about over in the US is uh, usually that the spent draft and and pot ale and I, guess, I don't know what they would call it here actually I'm blanking on that but um, same products the byproducts are sent over to the local dairy farms and you get very happy cows and that's yeah. about the end of the story and uh, there you know I know there are a couple of distilleries doing more sustainable products and 
production methods here, but I don't, I don't think for the most part it's taken off as it has in, let's say Scotland in particular mm-hmm. as, as something that's really uh, necessary and, and yeah. something to be celebrated. So with the, and with the, the biomass, I wanted to just cite something that um, it came up, I think it was also in that whiskey talk. Yeah, it was. So that, as you said, Woodland uh, Renewables takes, uh, it cuts down the wood, makes it into chips, replants. So there is that element of sustainability of um, cyclical nature. And it was pointed out too that, um, yes, of course, not cutting down the trees at all would be the the most kind of environmentally friendly. Sure. But if you take away that aspect and it's really just about the commercial use, if you're going to do it this way, then the best way to do it is locally because you're also taking out the transportation that would add to the pollution necessary to, or the necessary transportation that would add to the pollution down the loan, down the line. So it's by using it locally, that is pretty much the best case scenario for, for how to use these products and these methods. Yeah, those those trees were chopped down anyway, and they were transported by big lorries an hour and a half, two hours away to the uh, the, the sawmill, and that that was happening before. So we've actually taken that bit of traffic off the road for for the peninsula. Right, exactly. And uh, you've already said the uh, the lorries have a little bit of navigation ahead of them just to get through the roads anyway. So I'm sure they appreciated a couple of yeah, fewer exactly. trips, uh, a couple of easier trips for sure. Yeah. So with the uh, just coming back to the the to the peated water, um, is this the same peat used in the kilning process or different peat? No, with the with the peat in our because you're right to to mention that we we at the start of making whiskey or spirit in 2014, first year we just did unpeated spirit, and then in 2015 we introduced um, peated. Uh, malt which to the production which had been peated to a level of 30 parts per million but we grow about 65 to 70 percent of our own barley on the east coast of scotland where we've got farms of brim hall and um, in, in fife so we grow the barley there and then it gets malted by birds and crisp maltings so they use the peat that they have which is highland peat so it's not our peat um and it's a bit I think that would be taking it too far to start digging peat out of our hills to, to do it that way. It, it's just an, adding an extra step that isn't necessary in, in all honesty. And um, we're quite happy with the quality of the peated malt that we get. So we're not changing that. We have an exciting project again going on um, to harness that excess heat that we generate with the biomass is that we're going to have our own malt floor. The malt floor is already built. It's tiny, it's quite a small one if you compare to other distilleries, but it's uh, big enough to do, I think, a couple of runs a year. And that's going to be heated up with, um, you know, excess heat uh, from from the distillery. But we also plan to use peat in that process, but using modern technology, because there is a lot of talk about how peat isn't sustainable, that you can't regenerate that in a year. It takes thousands of, year, thousands of years to generate peat. The, the, the gardening industry is using a lot of peat, um, but the industry in our, we're in, the whiskey industry, isn't 
in the grand scheme of things, using a lot of peat. Um, but there are new technologies available that where you concentrate the smoke in, in the kiln. So you only use a couple of blocks of peat and that actually um, it elevates this, the smoke sensation through the body. Um, so we're looking into all these things now um, for next couple of years. I don't want to give a date to when we're going to start using our malt floor because um, they aren't ready yet, maybe a year or two. That's fine. The, having your own malt floor is, a, is certainly a luxury. I know, as you said, most and really the vast majority do not have their own malt floors. It's only like a dozen or two yeah. worldwide that have their own. Um, yeah, it's, but it is something really cool to experience. There, there are two of them up here where I am uh, in the Hudson Valley, uh, not too far from each other. And you get to actually go on, you can taste the malt and literally pick, you can see the malt germinating. You can see the little sprouts coming out of it. Yeah. Um, and I love that element. I mean, when I was at Springbank, I would go out and just check and, and you open up the grain and you check how, how chalky it is, if it's ready yet and how far the little, uh, it's grown. It's, it's, yeah. um, it's such a live, exciting, interesting process, process that is so important to, to the whole making of whiskey. And I love that part of it a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun to just, if you've, know of a malting floor near you i suggest going to visit and um if not we'll keep you informed as to when arden markins is open and uh, <laughs> send you up there to visit visit before then but we'll send you up there to return yeah. um so as the the peat's gonna be different which again it makes sense uh local peat's not real as you said local peat's not really as sustainable it's it's difficult to do to balance that desire to uh, let's say put the local peat in for the local flavor but at the same time it's it's tough to harvest the peat at this time and and keep it sustainable yep. so that being said so you have one kind of peat that's being used for the malting process at the very beginning uh and then you have the peated water that's coming off of the hills at various points but especially and most importantly i think at the end for for proofing so how do those two profiles intermix? And do you think it's possible to, to pick them out from each other? I genuinely don't know. I can't tell you. Um, I've tried, obviously, the umpting times, lots of times I've tried our unpeated, fresh bourbon matured or fresh sherry matured against the peated. We do that because I'm part of the blending team. There's five of us in the blending team. And we all sit and we try the, the whiskey, um, peated and unpeated. And we compare the notes. There is a DNA throughout the Arden American spirit that has got that beautiful mineralic saline profile that you get on the coast. Stop, something that Alex had in his mind before, he, he almost in, um, envisaged the flavor uh, before we even had a product. Like Big fans of Campbelltown whiskeys, big fan of, you know, sky whiskeys. And, and the West Coast had had such a big influence on, on all of our lives. So we knew that with that profile we were looking for, but whether we can, we haven't sat down and, and picked out that detail where that, how much of that peated water adds to the spirit or um, out of interest, maybe we should take some of that high, uh, high proof new make spirit and just bring bottled water with us, dilute it down and try it next to peated water. In fact, that's, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that to try and see how, because we are curious. We want to see if what we're saying actually makes sense, but I don't know how we, it would be like an in-house experiment, I suppose, on that. I will do yeah. that. I mean, I, I've got to imagine, I, I want to know the 
results of that for sure. Let me know. But <laughs> I mean, I've got to imagine the the peated water has to have a flavor influence, of course, especially if you're using it at the at the end just before casking, and you know it has to have something in there. It's not just how do I put this? It if it didn't, you'd probably just use regular RO water, like most other places do. Just we have it in abundance up the hills, so don't get me right. wrong. We have to; it's handy. Right. <laughs> we don't have to pay for it. Well, yeah. we, do, we pay for it because we have to pay for land order. But we do actually. Um, we do, we look at that water and we see. You almost see the grains in it. I don't know how to explain it. It's obviously it's colored. It's, it's yellow, but it's got that really um, wholesome um, uh, viscosity to it as well, and and it's really rich. Uh, it's not to everyone's flavor. Now it has got that sort of mineralic. Uh, my colleagues will drink it and say they can't taste the difference, but I do think there is a difference, and it is there is a difference when you drink it. Um, especially I live in Edinburgh, and the water here is quite heavily chemical, and you can tell the difference. So there will be a difference. I'm, I am I am sure whether we can pick that out when we try this experiment. I don't know, but if we do, I'll let you know. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Do you have to um, to treat that water in any kind of way to make it um, to make it potable to to we make it legal to it add in? And we run tests of it on it uh, weekly. I think it's weekly tests. Yes, we filter and and test it so we know it's uh, good to use. Gotcha. So so basically, it's clean to use, but you don't lose the peat character in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. So you mentioned also the uh, the farm on Fife. And then, uh, so as of at least two years ago, you were looking to use at least 50% of the crop if you could, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. You were looking to source at least 50% of your total barley crop from the farm on five. Yeah. Um, have you been able to do that? Yeah. We're now at 65 to almost 70%, depending on the year and the yield, we're definitely 65%. So we're, we're really chuffed with that. And it's right now, harvest season, this week and next, they're harvesting the spring barley on, on the Broomhall farm. And, the, and it seems like that, from the way you're saying it, that that's going to be sustainable going forward in terms of the, the volume that you want to produce. We, we we speak with our farmer um weekly we, we we have a really and this is another thing having worked in the industry for like i said 20 years and this is the first place i've worked at where i know almost every supplier by first name i even know their kids you know we, it's this kind of company where we all know each other and have these it's all personable relationships and and it works um and we all get on so the farmer uh, I was out there with Carl in our sales team the other day and they were doing a little mini film about the barley. You can see it on our social media. But it before the week before, the, John, the farmer, he put, we spoke to the team about, he, we did a little sort of um, catch us up on what, what's going on with the, with the crop this year. And, and he's also heavily involved in SQC, which is Scottish Quality Crops uh, Organization that makes sure that it's grown sus uh, sustainably, that the crop is grown and um, cared for properly and and that the right um, materials are administered in the right way. And so he's very, um, he's very good. I very, um, very precise with how he does things. And I know that for a fact that he can continue making those decisions to provide us with barley for, for the foreseeable future. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended Scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character 
with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's nose is both a nod to Ardenmarket's rugged western peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who, much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. So I know uh, due to the weather and the just, I keep saying remoteness, It's we're able to get there. But because of the, the weather, let's say the remoteness, uh, there are parts of the year where I've heard it's impossible to really get the barley or casks up to or down to the distillery, depending which direction you're coming from. Um, is that still the case? And, and if so, how do you work that into the production calendar? Yeah, um, with us being um, on this peninsula, we are reliant on a ferry that goes from Corrin and it's been down for oh, the whole of this year. It's not been operating. Uh, historically, the ferry would be down in November. So we could always plan ahead that we knew that the big lorries couldn't come over because with the, with the barley or the casks, the removal ones. They couldn't come over because the ferry wasn't operating. The, the land road that you can drive to us has a small, like a low bridge. So only smaller lorries can take that route. So we have been reliant on smaller lorries to take us uh, products and take casks away for a long time. Um, unfortunately, that's not up to us. The ferry is under the watchful eye of the Highland Council and they have to action that's pretty soon because it's we're all suffering and the locals are suffering that the ferry isn't working so yes um we are at the mercy of that um weather not so much unless the weather stopped the ferry or whatever but the the weather doesn't seem to stop us that much um but yeah we are reliant on the ferry we're reliant on um um no snow and ice i suppose which happens every now and again as well <clears throat> Not as much as you think it's Scotland, listeners, but it does happen yeah. for sure. Um, with the so between the the barley being grown on the two farms that you mentioned, plus um, other experimentation, uh, your colleague Graham was on not another whiskey podcast earlier this year. Still yeah. one of my favorite names of a podcast for this, <laughs> um, and he mentioned that he had been experimenting with Golden Promise and other barley varieties to achieve different things in the spirit, whether it be more oily, more vibrant. Um, yeah. What does that project look like right now? And let's just start with that. What do the project look yeah. like right now? We do. I mean, that's the luxury of being a smallish business is that we can be flexible and trial things as and when we want to. It was funny because I was chatting to production yesterday and there was a bit of a moan going, oh, this is really annoying because we're going to have rubbish yield the next week. Obsessed with get, meeting his targets and figures. 
And I said, how come? And he said, well, we're doing Golden Promise. And I just smiled and went, well, that means we're getting really good whiskey. Right. <laughs> we're going to have some beautiful spirit and the, the buttery notes that you get from the Golden Promise, just amazing. So he laughed and thought, well, okay. But yes, it does make a difference uh, in yield and it's not sustainable to do it all, all the time, but we do. We make, I can't, I don't even know how much Golden Promise we're doing this year, but we do them every year, a week or two, um, for sure. Uh, we also played around uh, towards the end of last year, and I think we'll do it again towards the end of this year, with heavily peated malt. So it was 80 parts per million. That's quite yeah. an interesting one. So, yeah, we're yeah. going to try some of that again. Um, but, yeah, no, we definitely play around. We're, we're, we're helping out or taking part in some research projects as well that a few companies are running by us. So I can't say too much about them, but it's exciting because it's to do with um, how brewing and distilling was done decades ago, not decades, um, centuries ago, and using historical grain for that. Um, so we, 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 are, we are at the luxury where we can factor in times where we can play around and and, um, and help science or, or set, settle our curiosity, I suppose. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I, I love talking about barley strains and the different types that go in there. Um, Waterford was a big, uh, that's how do I put this? I'm going to rephrase that and cut that part out. In terms of uh, liking the barley projects, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of course, Waterford, of uh, different distilleries. They're doing things like that. Um, Bricolati, of course, uh, in each has their own kind of way to do it. But and I love both the scientific aspect and also just tasting it. Like I love tasting the farm by farm aspect of it and doing them side by side. Oh, that is different. It's like tasting a wine from the left side or the right side of a river. It's, yeah. you know, at, at some point it's a little snobby. Yes. But it's also, um, it's true. Like there, there is a difference. Yeah, the variety, the variety of barley that plays a big role. Whether the farm and the ground plays a massive role, uh, from my point of view, the jury is still out on that. I mean, um, that's because it's tricky to prove, I suppose. But yes, a variety changes definitely changes the way um, uh, the consistency of a liquid is and and the, how the as um, the alcohols behave and and the proportions of different alcohols in them. It's fun. It's great. Yeah. It's not Did just you, you go to a tasting or you do a tour and the board the tour guide will say there's three ingredients, there's barley, water, yeast, blah, blah. Not just that. There's water with different types of, you know, minerals and elements. And you've got the different varieties of barley and the yeast. Don't get me started. Different yeast strains that you can play around with now. And all within the SWA's, you know, um, instructions or, or our recommendations, if you like. But that's important that you kind of still make whiskey. <laughs> you know, you're not going crazy sure i mean you're look you're tempting me to go down to the yeast strain thing because that's that's a big recurring theme here we love talking about that and or i love talking about that for sure i can't speak for listeners but um i love talking about those things uh with but before i forget with the use of the golden promise as an example of of one specific strain uh when you run that through the production process is it uh is it pulled out at all in order to kind of promote the golden barley the golden promises own characteristics or is it more fed in as part of the blend in order to raise the whole blend's profile nope it's separate kept separate so the casks that contain the golden promise spirit has gp written on them 
And um, I'm keeping my eyes whenever I'm up at the distillery and I'm looking out at the casks going up, GP, mm, that'll be interesting. <laughs> I just think it's such a lovely spirit. Um, yeah, so we're keeping them separate. We're very traditional. I mean, I know we're new and we're talking about we're modern. We do the QR code. You can get the whole story about the whiskey inside your phone. Um, and yes, we're sustainable and we use all these new technologies and, and how we can stay sustainable. But in in... In all honesty, we're traditional. Our our single malt whiskey is matured in bourbon casks and sherry casks. We do a little bit of peated and a little bit of unpeated because it gives us that flexibility at the at the blending stage where we can play around with those flavors. And um, it's a traditional double distillation that goes on at the distillery. Uh, we 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 don't play around with yeast. We we tend to stick with the yeast that we were recommended by Jim Swan, uh, who helped um, drawing the the drawings of the distillery. And um, yeah, we, we, we when it, in terms of cask maturations, yeah, we do play around. We have um, Madeira casks, we've got Mescal casks, we've got the Polonois, the Champagne casks. We do that and, and we will release limited releases on, on the back of our core. But in our heart of hearts, we're a traditional whiskey making company in, in that aspect. I have to say, I'm very excited for that uh, wine finish. And I'm not usually for wine finishes, but that one I'm I'm quite excited. We're just for the storytelling aspect too. Yeah. The, you know, is that the one where you got the entire outturn of the casks? Yeah. The the, the wine um is it's a small champagne house in France. They design these um ten casks, twelve no ten to twelve bar- barrels every year where they design a, a champagne to a customer who wants to decide what toasting levels they want. Um, it matures, the wine is in a Chardonnay grape, it matures for 11 months before it turns into champagne and the bottles. And um, we can, we get sent all those 10 to 12 barrels every year and we mature, uh, we finish. In fact, what we do is we have five-year-old uh, Arden American whiskey that's unpeated, non-peated, that's matured in bourbon casks that we transfer over to these Paul Noir casks. And then they stay there for a year and a half and it comes out as every spring, summer, the pull on away edition. And it's the third one this year that came out and it's kind of grown a bit of a cult following. It can be a little bit like people later love it or hate it. Well, actually saying that most people actually do enjoy it, but it is it, because of the wine finish type, there'll be some people saying, oh no, it's not for me. But I'll tell you what, it is for me. It's the favorite whiskey we make. I love it. The blending we do, um, we actually invite the pull on away team over it's just a husband and wife team sarah and julian lonoa they come for the blending of that and help us blend that specific whiskey it's amazing that's awesome you get to if you're the winemakers there you get to you get to taste the product of your yeah. product which is it's got to be a lot of fun wow no i don't think anybody else does that it's, it's something that we we can do because we we have that right. flexibility do anybody. you get uh sure do you get to keep you know a case or two of the uh, the wine itself, just to share amongst the distillery. Funny story. After the first blending session and after a few drams, we decided to become the importer of their champagne to to the UK. <laughs> so we actually now are not just a whiskey distillery. We're also a random champagne importer. But there's such a small portion. We've just received a pallet of champagne to the shop. So we sell in our so you can drive all the way to the Arden American distillery and, and see how we make whiskey. And it's one of the few places in the UK you can buy the Paul Noir champagne as well. We sell to a distributor in Edinburgh and London, and then it's us. So yeah, it's good fun. 
I will follow up with you on that because one of my favorite things with these, with any kind of finish uh, where you're using another product is to be able to taste the product itself and then the yeah. finish. So I want to taste the whiskey that's finished in these and the champagne and see, okay, what happened to the whiskey because of the champagne, what's coming from the champagne, what's not potentially. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the most fun things. And it's also one of the rarest things to be able to do, especially from a consumer aspect. I know, you know, on the distillery and producer side, you have a little bit more access to yeah, do right. so, but on the consumer side, it's almost impossible because half the time we don't even know what the source of the casks are. It's just, it's a red wine cask. It's a sherry cask. You know, once in a while, you know, the bodega, but. It enhances experience, but, and, and to be honest, uh, in the two decades I've been in the industry, uh, the consumer's knowledge has grown so much. And it's no longer the people just go to a tasting and expect you to say, oh, well, it's matured in bourbon casks, so taste of vanilla. They want to know, like, about the charring, what 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 distillery did the cask come from? And they want to know so much more about everything. And it's important that it's all about the education side of things as well. And, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important that you drink and eat things that you understand the the, the concept and, and the transparency of that company that where you're what you put into your lips, if you like. Um, yeah. And you see yeah. that with QR codes, with the blockchain yes. that you're producing, that you get to see exactly where those things come from. That's a very valuable thing for a consumer. Yeah. With the so you, you mentioned, you, of course, you produce the unpeated and the peated spirit. It's kept totally separate. It's cast separately. The pipes are different. It's really designed to be kept separate until the very, very end. Uh, and the decision to split the spirit into those two was made pretty early. Was that also uh, at, at Dr. Swan's uh, suggestion? Yeah. It's funny because there is actually a big fat padlock on the spirit and the peated spirit receiver just to avoid any mistakes happening. <laughs> so the still man can't just go and open uh, by open the wrong valve. It's got a big fat padlock. You need to know that you're actually doing peated before you do that. Not a bad idea, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big believer you can't get, uh, once you run peat through something, you just can't get it out. You can scrub and enzyme as much as you want, but there's always going to be like one PPM left in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I usually give the example of the Bricolati Classic Laddie. It's unpeated, but I still get a little bit in there, a little <laughs> bit of smoke, something in there. So um, yeah. I don't know. I, I so, the, so having it designed that way and to keep it separate is a brilliant idea. And the padlock is not only brilliant, it's also hilarious. So I love it. <laughs> Um, yeah whatever helps and uh so you're not obviously not not the only distillery making both peated and unpeated um perhaps unique in in the level of separation in which you you keep them but uh of course others do it we see the topomori sky and you get different loch loman you see different products coming out on, that are peated or unpeated or some mix of the two um what i would say Unless, unless we just covered it already, but what differentiates Arden American's process in doing so? And that can be at the production side or at the blending side. Um, what do you mean by the, well, do you, do you mean, so I'm just thinking, running through a few names in my mind, like, you know, Springbank has Springbank and then they've got Hazelburn and Longrow. So they've actually, their right. heat product is a complete different name. It's a different product in their portfolio. And so is right. Tomato. 
Wochen und uh, Lecceg und, und Tobimori. Whereas we, it's Arden American and it's basically, Arden American Core is a gentle peated dram, but our limited release cask strength is a heavily peated um, Arden American. So we don't change, we haven't changed the brand for it. It's just all under the, the same name. That's kind of what I'm thinking is that like the, the other brands, as, as you just mentioned, they, it'll come from one distillery, but it'll be under a different brand depending on what style yeah. it is. But for Ardemarkin, it's not only, uh, as you said, in the core range, it's a lightly peated spirit, a blend of the two of the unpeated and the peated to create a lightly peated spirit. But there's also the idea of, of not putting out as far as I am, as I am understanding it, uh, not putting out just an unpeated, and just uh, heavily peated, it's part of the entire Ardenmerkin character to have all of those under one banner. For us, the most important thing uh, throughout this whole process is that the whiskey tastes good, that people want to have another dram of it. And it's just, we are whiskey drinkers and geeks in our team, all of us, and we just need to understand or know that other people feel the same as us. They want to take another dram of it and they want to drink it again. It has to be about the flavor. And if it means a bit more peat one day and less, then that's it. We have the flexibility to play around with it. And the Polona is much better without peated spirits because it lets this acidity of the wine cask shine through beautifully, blending with the viscous Ardemarkin spirit. Um, but the cast strength that's like almost 95% produced, uh, sorry, matured in bourbon casks, that's again 90, almost 95% peated barley. That just sits beautifully together as well. Like it, we've done some single casks that are peated and unpeated, and it's nice to try them side by side, <clears throat> like a sherry that's peated and a sherry that's non peated. It's, it's a fun experiment to do. You'll still get that DNA of Arden American in through it, but there is a variance, obviously, with the peat. And you also do something that's uh, fairly unusual in Scotch whiskey by stirring the wort and not having a clear wort to go in. Uh, was that, I guess, was that also Jim's design? And uh, what does that do for your spirit? So, do you know, uh, it's a really good question because I think that is the one thing, and I could be wrong now, I wish I had the production guys here, but um, that was the one thing that I think we've changed slightly, that we slowed it down a little bit, even a bit more. So there is a stir, but it's incredibly slow and it's to keep the work clear and what does that do to the spirit you know you'd think i'd know but it's completely not on my radar at the moment i know that we have a very slow stir and i know um it was changed a few years ago so it would have been after jim swan passed away just from from what i've known just from talking to other distillers it could be anything from Sometimes it's as simple as it just makes it easier to filter out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, well, that's, if that's it's, nice. it's clear. Yeah. Um, but there is, I know there's something about having a a cloudy wart that it does affect the flavor, but I, I'm, I too am blanking on an example to pull from that says this is what it might do or, or something like that. Yeah. But oh, we'll have to look into it. It's, it's yeah. got to be something. Um, there's always new so stuff to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, like you said, this would be boring. So, yeah. And it's certainly not. Well. So being on the westernmost point of uh, the British mainland, you are exposed to, as we've talked about, the, the coast, the winds, um, rain, 
even occasionally snow. And uh, so for the casks that are maturing on site, yeah, uh, what does that do for the casks? Well, it's a really good question again. And we do get asked that. And um, we feel very much that maturing on the coast has a big influence on the on the spirits, the, the quality of our spirit and the flavor of it. Um, it is coastal. It definitely is coastal. We have never matured it anywhere else, though, so we can't uh, compare it to anything else. We can't say exactly how that is. But I do... I know distilleries that are located on islands and they mature in between Edinburgh and Glasgow and they're telling us that it's not true, it's not that doesn't have any influence. And but how can it not? Like, look, if you walk, if you walk, spend five minutes walking along the front of our distillery, and if it's raining or if it's windy, and you 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 um you lick your cheek, like you take your finger and lick your cheek, you'll taste salt. Like your your cheek will be like covered in this hue of, of coastal water and wind, salty water. The cars that the people that work for us, that our team drive these cars that are constantly maintenance because they're exposed to the salt air. There is no chance that the salty seacoast air doesn't have an influence in, in the maturation of our whiskey. But what we would have to do is take two identical casks, mature one at Erdnamurken and the other one in five next to the motorway, and then tell you in 10 years if there is a difference or not. That's a big experiment to do. That's the because oh, whiskey takes so long to make. You can't just answer these questions yes or no. But for us, sure. it's not a PR marketing ploy. We don't need that. I know that sounds really cocky, but we don't need it. No, we, that's true. Yeah, and we feel very much that it definitely has a coastal profile, and it is it, that sort of oyster shell, the oiliness. That's all what we all get from these other coastal distilleries in the west coast. There's yeah, something. Little brininess in there. I I really like that. It and you're right. It's not, it's not like your whiskey is salted. It's not like that. It's it's just that feeling that you get that you're walking through maritime air. You're walking yeah. on the beach, and I I personally love that. And whiskey, I finding coastal is kind of my favorite category. I think not so much the regionality necessarily, but more just coastal. Yeah, I get a little bit annoyed when, when I enter awards or when I enter, if I'm talking about our whiskey and they say, oh, what region is it from? And I have to say Highlands. And there's nothing wrong with the Highlands. Don't get me wrong. I love, 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 love Highland whiskies. But we're not Highlands, as in, you know, like, right. we're West Coast Highlands, the, the, the West Coast of Highlands, which I'm always trying to influence, like make sure that they understand that where we are, it's not in the beautiful Hederly Hills of uh, I don't know, Glendronach or any of the other beautiful distilleries that you, sure. you find. But yeah, it is coastal uh, for sure. And I know we only have uh, just a couple minutes left, but the uh, there are a couple things that I just want to run through that we won't have a you know time to go in uh, today, but are worth checking out both on the website and through just various channels for Art American. Uh, one of them being the QR codes and blockchain. We've talked about it a few times during the podcast, but, um, and I know that's something that Jen, you, you came on to do that project and it's something very close to your heart in terms of your, your job on a daily yeah. basis of what you do. Uh, and it's, I think we've gone into why it's important because it shows the whole history of a bottle. It shows where it came from, the age, the casks, all of that. Well, if you've so, seen our bottles, you know, they're plain. It's a plain bottle with our logo 
uh, molded onto it. It's got a tiny little label. It says Arden American Distillery, and it tells you a little bit about it. But it's the the whole concept is the whiskey bottle shall show you what the whiskey is. We want a transparent bottle to see the whiskey. That's all about. Um, mm. That's the same with the Adelphi range. It's got a tiny label and a big bottle where you can see clearly see your whiskeys. And on the back of our American products is the QR code, which will give you every bit of detail and information that you want to know. But the decision to get rid of the box, we had a really sustainable box. We actually had the most, we had 100% recycled and recyclable box when we first launched. But then last year we spoke to our importers, we spoke to 21 markets and asked them how we felt about removing the box. And um, as you would imagine, it was the sort of Asian markets like uh, Taiwan, China, that were thinking it's not ideal for gifting if you don't have a box. We just agreed with them that they can produce their own then, and which is mostly done in that part of the world anyway. So they can produce their own, run the specs by us, and then they can continue. Whereas the rest of the world straight away, like America is used to buying product, buying uh you can buy bourbons that have no box. You understand that uh, you don't need a box to make a good whiskey. Uh, Europe straight away took uh, took it on board as well. Uh, the UK as well. Um, the bottle weight is light. It's important that when you think about the shipping weight and the freight costs and um, yeah, the high, it's a really high recycled uh, content of glass in there as well. It's constant uh, that um, uh, evolution towards that sort of net zero target and again the the blockchain it's not it's also not just a pr move or something it's very cool and certainly something to promote that way but it has a purpose and um i initially i had a question about you know would it be worth investing the time and money into that to to do that when of course you've got so many projects going on but i mean as a consumer and as an interested consumer i think it's very very worthwhile for those reasons and so you've got, it yeah. is our weapon i don't know why more distilleries aren't doing it i'm not being funny yeah. we we're at the, we're at the final stages now of um so we've been doing it for for since 2018 properly but uh, we've, we've implemented a system now where the production staff will enter the data into their pads day-to-day temperature mm-hmm. water who's working what shift etc i then as a marketing person can pull that information from their platform into the marketing platform and use that as the part of the story that we tell about the book. So, um, sorry, tell about the whiskey in our storybook. And and that's almost finished now. We're, we're almost at the end of the making of, of the two platforms and join them together. Currently, it's a we're using. I'm using the, the the marketing dashboard, but I'm pulling the information from the production spreadsheets or from the production information data that they had before. So they we're making that a lot easier as well. It's going to be much quicker and it's been a process. We, we're actually, we, for to, to get the blockchain to, you need to work with the right people. We, we've we actually, this is the third company we're working with because um, the first one decided to go with the air, airplane parts and there was more money in that and then whiskey. Right. The second one uh, went with a bank. And this one that we're now working with is completely on board with the fact that this is going to be an essential tool for all distilleries, not just whiskey, spirits, um, any producer of spirit alcohol can use this tool. And uh, they've been incredibly helpful. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to just continuing with it. And it's so easy. Like I can stand at the tasting and somebody would be really geeking out asking me questions. And I just say, well, Get your smartphone out and scan the bottle and see what the answer is. And it, it's there. I love it. Fantastic. And the 
the last question I wanted to throw to you is, uh, may not it may not be one you can answer. That's totally fine. Uh, but it's it's one that I wanted to think about, which was um, another Jim Swan question. He's one of those guys that just I really wish that I had gotten to meet, but yeah. he was already passed by the time I really got into this stuff. Um, but he had obviously so much impact on the distillery. It was one of his earliest projects uh, as an independent. And uh, you can see elements of that. And we've talked about some of them. Mm-hmm. But there are also elements that kind of became signatures of his that aren't in mm-hmm. um, Ardemir, such as you, know, you don't use STR casks, mm-hmm. things like that. So I'd be curious to know from maybe the whole distillery team and, and the founders and just how this came to be when working with Dr. Swan, I would imagine you've got a certain level of, okay, I got to talk to this person. I got to follow what he's doing. He's this expert. He's designing the stills. He's designing the processes, all of these things. But also there was enough independence to say, we're going to follow you, Jim, through this part, but we're not going to do the STR cast or we're not going to do this. And I'm curious of the thought processes where the division lay in what they felt like they had to follow and what they felt like they could kind of declare independence from and, and branch off from while still being identifiably a Jim Swan influence project? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, Jim Swan was, was hired to be a consultant on the build and on the process because he, as much as we had Alex Bruce, who'd been in industry for a few years by then, and we had our directors that had been involved in the whiskey industry for a while, we didn't have anybody that had that knowledge of building a distillery or to making spirits to whiskey. So James Vaughan was involved in Kilhoman. He was involved in a lot of other distilleries and we were recommended him. So we took him on board and have, I actually have his notes right here <laughs> because I'm looking for a time project for Adelphi and I came across them a couple of weeks ago and they've been lying on top of my desk. And a one-day technical visit to Arden American Distillery, 17th of April, 2015, by Jim Swan. And it's all, all the information in here is to do with the temperatures of mashing, um, the resting period in the mashing, uh, the stirring that we're talking about. Um, there are some things that um, about the water circulation um, that it's just the note here saying currently not possible to do at Arden American. So it's obviously to be re- revisited in the future. So there are, you are exposed to a few things with, when you start a distillery and it's like, <laughs> there isn't a carbon copy where everything is exactly the same as the other. You have to adhere to the, obviously the, the location where you're in and the quality of the water that you're using. It's all different between each distillery the people that you have available to you. I mean, it's taken us a, I mean, we have people that have worked with us since 2014, like Gordon and Mackenzie, he started in 2014. He was a bus driver and then he became a mash, a warehouse man and then a mashman stillman, and he's now the distillery manager. Um, but a few of you guys have joined us in 2017, 2018, and we have a really solid team now. And that's taken time to develop. And they're all learning on the back of Jim Swan's notes but they're also becoming experts in the Arden American spirit. And that's something that James Bond wasn't. Like he, he didn't know the Arden American spirit. He never got to experience it. And, and 
they have that knowledge. They understand now how the yeast acts. They understand if they can cut a bit of yeast. They understand if they can change the times. And they understand that the temperature in Ireland America is different to Isla, to other parts of the world. And they, they are becoming our inside consultants, if you like, which they should be. And we're very lucky to have a team that are incredibly um, inquisitive and, 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 and investing their time in, in loving the final product. They don't just come in. There are lots of other, I mean, our market doesn't have a big unemployment, history of unemployment. So the fact that we have these people working with us is is is, uh, is great. And they have become, I suppose, their own version of James Wan, if you like. They, they do their own version of the Ireland market spirit. But we are very much following um, his original plans, but tweaking them as we grow older and understand our nature better. From what I know of the man, I think he would appreciate that very much. So I think that's a perfect way to end this segment. So Jenny, thank you so much for coming Sorry. on. Sorry, can I oh, just, yeah. just come across the yeah, conclusion? Please. And this is written in 2015. I haven't even looked at this before. So this is really, really bad. If I, but I, the conclusion, a superb distillery capable of making great single malt whiskey and requiring only a few modifications. We recommend a follow-up visit prior to the summer shutdown and again in winter, plus regular monitoring of the maturation of whiskey. But that those are his words. <laughs> so that's nice to read. It's from from his mouth to the bottles and our mouths. So wonderful. And I certainly hope to visit at some point and get up there. In the meantime, I'll have to be satisfied with drinking the products that are coming over here. Um, and maybe finding some of that champagne as well, but we'll get there. But Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to uh, talk about Arden American, Adelphi, uh, McLean's Nose that is now available in the US. I can personally tell you, I love this bottle. Um, go ahead, try it out for yourself. You won't be disappointed. Um, and if you are, it won't cost you that much. So you still won't be disappointed. And um, I should also mention that as we're recording, uh, Jenny's colleague, Connell McKenzie, is in the U.S. He is doing the Arden America tour, which is a brilliant name. Uh, it started just before this recording in Brooklyn. Uh, it's also been going on. It'll be going on throughout the Northeast through September, and we'll be posting dates about that. Even if this episode comes out after that, we'll be posting the dates on social media. So as always, follow on social media so you don't miss any news from our guests and from our sponsors. So with that, as in the show notes, as always, we'll have info, we'll have links to reviews, we'll have social media, uh, and where you can find more information. But until then, Jenny, thank you again. This has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice. And let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. 
Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.